0: I'm Nancy Allen, and you're
1: listening to Gilbert Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast. Oh, (laughs) thank you. This could take a while. This could take a while. (laughs) I should have been rehearsing this. Okay, I'm Nancy Allen, and you're listening to Gilbert Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast.
2: Gilbert, you eat shit. Just easily, please. You are Nancy. a very sick person. <laughs> I hate to <told> tell you. <laughs> Godfrey, and this is Gilbert Godfrey's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santopadre and our engineer, Frank Ferdorosa. Our guest this week is a genuine, bona fide showbiz legend, a producer, a New York Times bestselling author, an entrepreneur, and one of the most successful and influential talent managers in showbiz history, guiding the careers of artists such as Anne Murray, Blondie, Teddy Pendergrass, Luther Vandross, Ben Vereen, Squeeze, Frankie Valli, George Clinton, Kenny Loggins, the Pointer Sisters, Raquel Welch, Rick James, and even Groucho Marx. He even managed Pink Floyd for all of nine days. (laughs) And he's still working with his original client and longtime friend, Alice Cooper. He's also a movie producer, helping bring to the screen award-winning films like The Duelist, Kiss of the Spider Woman, *Roadie*, Stop Making Sense... Choose Me, The Whales of August, Wes Craven Shocker, and John Carpenter's They Live. But that's not all. He also created the concept of the celebrity chef, directing the careers of Wolfgang Puck, Emeril Lagasse, Nobu Masuhisa. <laughs>
3: Close? <laughs> Close enough.
2: And Daniel Balud, among others. His best selling memoir is entitled, They Call Me Supermensch. And he's also the subject of the Mike Myers directed documentary, Supermensch. The Legend of Shep Gordon, uh, which was released to rave reviews in 2016 and featured longtime friends Sylvester Stallone, Michael Douglas, and Willie Nelson. Please welcome to the podcast, mentor, advisor, spiritual guru, master promoter, marketing genius, idol maker, and the man who came up with the brilliant idea of wrapping a rock and roll record in women's panties. (laughs) The one and only Shep
3: Gordon. Now I know why I'm tired. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, you said your a- documentary was like a eulogy. That's like a eulogy. Yeah, it's job. all a
0: eulogy. My life has turned into a eulogy.
2: <laughs> now, now starting, starting from the beginning, one of your first jobs was something I'm sure any, uh, any Jewish parents would be so proud of their son doing. You were a security guard in a prison.
0: Yeah, I was actually a probation officer. I was in in the California... I was a probation officer for a day at uh, Los (laughs) Pedrinos Juvenile Hall. And um, I was going to the New School for Social Research, knew I wanted to drop out, and they sent some some, uh, recruiters from the California penal system. And I said... um, I I was a Jewish kid from Manhattan who thought of myself as um, the savior on a white horse. And it was the Reagan era when when people like me, hippies, um, I was a full on hippie, were getting persecuted. And I said, I'm going to go save these kids. So uh, the luckiest that was that was probably the best choice I ever made because it started my journey. I ended up at Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall. Um, I had hair almost down to my waist. Luckily I left the, uh, psychedelics in the car cause I had to go through a frisking when I went in. <laughs> good decision. Yeah. Good decision. And, um, uh, they, uh, they sort of set me up. They sent me out to play baseball with the kids who were all basically South American kids young. Uh, this was a probation, not a jail. So it was under 18. And, um, I guess they gave them instructions that I was going to be the baseball, and all the guards left, and the kids came around me and um, didn't really hurt me, but I, I you know, I, I got the message, and I, I left that night and um, drove into L.A. and checked into a motel. I had about ten days' worth of money in a cheap motel; It was I think fifty dollars a night, and um, took some psychedelics. <laughs> You saw a vacancy sign, right? saw so a vacancy yep. sign. It was actually right next to the Magic Castle, but I didn't uh-huh. know about the Magic Castle in those days. It was yeah. all fake because I got off the freeway and I got in the right lane. I was trying to get to Hollywood, but you had to make a right on Franklin Boulevard, which is where this motel was. And it's a vacancy, went in, checked in room 224, still remember the room in the corner, and I heard a girl screaming. After I I was, you know, psychedelicized and heard a girl (laughs) screaming and (laughs) and it just had just come from a jail. So my thoughts weren't of love. They were sort of of something violent. So I went down again on my white horse. You know, here's the savior and um, separated him and the girl punched me. They were making love. And in the the morning, I went down to the pool and the girl pulled me over and the girl was Janis Joplin. Amazing. And, and she was sitting with all these rock stars, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. And, and my mind immediately went to, I am the luckiest guy in the world. I just found the world's greatest customers from my pharmacy business. <laughs> 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 and my journey began. And, and about three months into it, I made enough money to buy a car. <laughs> so when I got the car, Jimi Hendrix said, um, what do you do for a living? I, I never see you go to work. And I said, well, I just do my pharmaceuticals. And he said, well, what are you going to tell the police if they ask you where you got the money for a car? And I had never thought of that. Long Island, nobody asks you. And in Watts, you know, they ask you. And uh, I said, I don't know. He said, are you Jewish? And I said, yeah. I said, you should be a manager.
3: <laughs> and, Career uh, advice from Jimi Hendrix.
0: And Alice Cooper was living in Chambers Brothers' basement. And he said, can you afford to pay $100 a week to say you manage these guys? And I said, absolutely. So Alice tells of Jimi Hendrix walking in with Lester Chambers saying, we found a Jew who will give you $100 a week and manage you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and the journey began <laughs> you, you had no knowledge of that hot, of that motel no no you whatsoever. were pulling into the rock and roll motel it was just there the, there was a vacancy sign it was in a convenient spot at the time yeah it was completely because i had to make that right turn Got to make that right um, turn i can you remember know, this place is as good as any right oh yeah it was, uh,
0: it was um I figured I could spend fifty dollars a night, and this was, I think, like thirty-eight or something.
3: It's almost magical. No,
0: it's a bit. The, the, but this, most this of my just, life this, has this, been knee-jerk. You know, openness to be open enough to some knee-jerk
3: bump. Yeah, I mean, it's a random decision to just oh, I'll pull into this place, uh-huh. and it it changes everything. Everything oh in gosh. a moment. Yep.
2: So then your first and only client at the time. I guess or or maybe the other ones were clients.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they had yeah, a different way. Yeah. yeah. Um, was uh, Alice Was Alice Cooper, who was who was for me the perfect client because everybody hated him.
2: <laughs> which meant I would never
0: have to work cuz I didn't know what to do. I was doing it as a cover for my pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so he was the, the perfect perf- cover. He was the perfect client in life. Um And life was beautiful. We went on for about a year, maybe nine months, and he'd come get his $100, and um, I'd do my thing, and it was great. And then people started to get arrested all around me. (laughs) Um, And I just didn't want to be one of those people. So the only thing really in my life was Alice. The only thing in Alice's life was sort of me. So we looked at it, you know, the band got together. Alice at that time wasn't Alice. Alice was Vincent Fernier. Alice was... Five people. So we all got together. And I remember what we talked about. We said, um, it only took like 10, 12 people for Christianity. We don't need to be that big. We- <laughs> and and their thoughts were much more abstract than ours. Um, so six of us really believing if we make a pact that we're going we're gonna to change the world with this, let's just stay together till we do it. And the only thing we really had was that people didn't like them. So, <laughs> so the, the thought was, how do we turn that into a positive? And when we started to think about it, we realized that that was the thing that every superstar had in common. Parents hated them. They hated right. the Beatles, they hated the Stones, they hated Sinatra. Elvis. Yeah, and now yeah. it's hip hop. You know, I remember going into my kids' room hearing hip hop and rap the first time and thinking, what is this crap? And as I said it, I realized it's going to be the biggest thing ever. Cause so, so we realized that we had in our toolkit, this unbelievable tool, which was the ability to get people to hate us. So we, <laughs> we told that story and we did everything to that point. That's where, you know, the chickens came from and that's where the name Alice came from and that's where makeup came from. And that's where chopping up babies came from. What's going to really piss off a parent. And, um, during the course of it, he developed into a great rock and roll act. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. And,
2: and that, was, that was the legend of Alice Cooper, uh, where everyone says, oh, he's the guy who bit off the yeah. head of a yeah. chicken.
0: Which he never did. So, yeah.
2: yeah. So what was the real story?
0: The real story was we, we had our uh, – the theory we had of getting parents to hate us was a great theory. The Making it happen was a tough one. So buying lunch was difficult. Our (laughs) dreams were big. So we knew we didn't have a lot of stuff. We didn't have a lot of bullets left in our gun. We just, we couldn't get attention. Um, We tried, the first thing we tried to do was we we went into a a place called The Experience in L.A. on Sunset Boulevard. And the thought was, let's get arrested for indecent exposure. Indecent exposure could maybe make a daily newspaper or a TV (laughs) thing in L.A., Parents will see it and say, oh, my God, this is disgusting. A guy named Alice who's naked on stage. So we <laughs> we made up see-through plastic clothes and play, went, went on stage at, at the experience. And you could see everything. The genitals were all there. Uh, <laughs> and I went to a phone booth and I called 911. And I said, oh, my God, I'm here with my children. There's these naked, f- uh, crazy hippies on stage. I'm sure they're on drugs. Next thing I know, the <laughs> sirens are coming. It's like, yeah, we got them, baby. <laughs> the police come, you know, bust in the door, like eight policemen. And uh, by that time, the heat of their bodies had fogged up the plastic. So you couldn't see anything. They looked like they were dressed. <laughs> the <policemen. laughs> it was a noble effort. So, that's what I, so we had a lot of noble efforts, but we were getting near the end of our economics. We were eating like rock soup. Um, and an opportunity came up for me to produce a show with John Lennon. It was the first show, um, Oh, the rock and roll revival. show. Yeah. It was the rock and roll yeah. in Toronto. Um, it was Jim Morrison and the doors who I knew. Well, I helped get them for the show. Um, and John, so I knew John's first appearance with Yoko was going to get the world's attention. So in lieu of pay, I said, I just wanted this act, my act to go on before him. And they agreed to it because they, they was too late in the game. They couldn't get rid of me. And, um, that was the only way I was going to do it. So you put
3: Alice between the doors and John Lennon. Yep. Um,
0: and Jim, Jim was very cool with it. Jim was loved Alice. They were really good friends. He understood this was sort of make it or break it for us. And we had to do something outrageous. And I, truthfully, I couldn't think of anything outrageous. So we did one the thing we were doing was we had pillow feathers, uh, feather pillows in the hotel room and CO2 tanks from fire extinguishers. So we were able to open up the pillowcase and blow it out with um, CO2 every day as long as we stayed in hotels that uh, had feathers. So that was part of our show. And I was driving to the show trying to figure out what to do and we got to the show there were these veer whatever like what do you call them, feral chickens?
3: Yeah. Running I guess, around sure. the field. Wild I, chickens?
0: So I said this is it. So I just put one in a in a uh, laundry bag from backstage and, you know, snuck to the stage. And when the feathers started to go on stage, I threw the chicken and Alice saw the chicken and he assumed the chicken could fly. So he threw it to the audience and the audience just ripped it apart. They were frenzied. And that became Alice bit the head off a chicken and drank the blood. And we never said it wasn't so. We were thrilled that that was the story, but it wasn't. You went with it. We went with it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Print, print, the legend. Yeah, truth, truth wasn't our biggest factor at the. <laughs> well, didn't you? Didn't that lead to you to the ASPCA following you guys around for no, years? Every,
0: every single show. That's sort of where the <laughs> snake came from because we figured, as long as they're there, we might as well really irritate them. So, what other animal could we introduce into the show that would really freak them out? And the snake came up. So they had it was a double header. They wa- they were after us for the snake and for the chicken every night. But that would make the six o'clock news. And that's what we wanted. We wanted, on 6 o'clock news, the most respectable people in the city saying, oh, this disgusting guy is in your town tonight. Don't let your kids out to go see him. That's what worked for us.
2: And yeah. and you, in England, you took a big picture yeah. of Alice Cooper <laughs> oh, with naked. De- with
3: Derek Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, with
2: a snake wrapped around him. And had this guy just drive around Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> And then just stop. That's a great one. It was the same
0: theory. It was, um, I went to London. We had put Wembley up on sale. Um, I thought that because we were starting to sell tickets in America, we would in England. But I got into town about five days early and ticket sales were very weak. And they took me into the office of this gentleman, Derek Taylor, who I had never met, who was just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He was the fifth Beatle. Great character always had a cigarette dangling from his mouth. And when I went in his office, George Harrison was there in these white robes. He had just come from India. It was sort of that period of time, the Beatles in India. And Harry Nielsen was in there and a whole bunch of people. And I had to wait like three, four hours to get his attention. Then he sort of said, "Uh, what can I help you? I know uh, my president sent you down. I said, I have this band, Alice Cooper. And he said, I haven't heard of him. And I, I, he said, tell me about him. So I explained a bit about him and he said, what can I help you with? And I said, well, I need, a, I said, I need a way to rapidly piss off every parent in England. <laughs> and I only have three days to do it. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, we started talking and I said, I just come from America, from New York. And Richard Avedon took this picture of Alice naked with a boa constrictor wrapped around his uh, penis. And uh, Derek said, um, Well, let's see, let's talk about it. He said, Every family, where can you get every family? You can get them at morning news on the BBC. They watch traffic. Um, you could get them maybe in the newspaper, but three days is tough for a newspaper story for me to get a reporter. So when he said traffic, I said, Well, tra- if, do they watch traffic every morning? He said, Yes. Yeah. What about if we took that picture and put it on a big thing and broke it down? Would they? cover that? He said, absolutely. And he's the one who came with Piccadilly. It ended up backing up traffic for about 25 miles. He broke down the truck three times, went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Same police every time came over <laughs> <laughs> to get the truck away. <laughs> was the and driver worried he was going to get arrested? Chef? He knew he was going to get arrested, but we told him yeah. we'd cover him. But You'll the, take best, care the him. best part of it was that well, the, what we didn't expect was the next day, one of the MPs in in Parliament introduced a bill to ban Alice from coming into the country to do the show. So the the London papers had a picture of the billboard with Alice naked, and the story about banned in England that this MP was trying to ban us. So the show sold out in two hours. It was like, of course, bang. fantastic, yeah. fantastic.
3: <laughs> since, since we mentioned Pink Floyd in the intro, and I don't I don't want to forget it because because it's, it's kind of fun. That you that you only and I want to ask you what Sid Barrett was like if you have any memories. Yes, yeah, Sid of Barrett, him. I, I a had, legend. I had met
0: Sid Barrett only
3: once during
0: that time, and I, I really only met I only met three of the band members. Okay, um, they had a, a road manager named Stephen O'Rourke, and they stayed in that motel, same motel, same motel, and Jimmy and um, and Lester wanted me to. Um, develop a business that, you know, you should be, a, you should manage other people. So they, <laughs> the name of my company is because they were artists and they wanted to make me a business card. And in those days, the Chambers brothers used to put up a V. Uh time has come today. They would sing sure. at the end of their show and they put up the peace sign and fingers. It was a big thing in those days. V so they drew that. And we'd looked in a dictionary for the first word with a V and it was alive. A L I V E. So, so they brought me Pink Floyd as a second client. They said, we have this great guy. He's Jewish. He's really great. He's, you know, and um, a guy named Steve O'Rourke came in. They wanted a, a, a gig on the way back to England. They were going back like 10 days later, and I knew nothing. I didn't even know what a gig was. <laughs> um, I had to ask what a gig was when they left the room. But but uh, Lester called a guy in, um, in Chicago and booked him at this fan, the, the hot club in Chicago the following weekend. It was a guy named Aaron Russo, very famous guy in the music business, was married to Bette Midler, ran for mayor a lot. I know the name,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah very a film
0: producer too, I think. Film producer, very famous yeah. guy. yeah, and, and a very famous, um, lived on the edge of 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 the lore, sort of. I don't know how okay. to describe <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, he, a kinetic playground, which was like the Fillmore. And I got him $10,000 to play, um, which I didn't know was a gigantic sum of money, to play the following weekend, which I didn't know nobody books anybody for the next weekend. Well, they hired me immediately as a manager. $10,000 was got to Chicago, the club burned down that weekend. He Unbelievable. Needed, he, I'm sure, needed an act to be on the marquee, who he could not pay because the club burned down, but there I had no other act, so I wouldn't hurt his future. So that was the weekend the club burned
3: down, and they fired me immediately. When <laughs> the <laughs> end of your, associ- your association with Pink Floyd. That by by a- the way, Chef, that's Gilbert's dream, that the club burns down before he has to go on.
2: <laughs> Every I time, that the time when I'm backstage <laughs> waiting to go <laughs> yeah, on, pretty- I think I wish there was a fire or a flood, <laughs> that's and they hand me my check and yeah, yeah, send so me home. Just,
0: yeah. <laughs> Should now, I want to have a detonator
3: button? Soon as they give you the
2: check. (laughs) Just start start
3: torturing the place, Gil, like Joe Pesci. Good fellas.
2: Now, uh, the first time you met Teddy Pendergrass, uh, tell us your sales pitch (laughs) to him. That's
0: right. You know, there's certain stories that you sort of never tell because they're not really believable or because you don't want (laughs) to hurt somebody. (laughs) This is a story I never told until Teddy wrote his bio, and he wrote it in his bio, so I now feel like I'm free to tell it. But Sure. um, I I first went to see him, and I went backstage, and there was every great Jewish manager um, (laughs) all lined up at the door. He had just had a number one record. You know, I didn't like the show, um, and I didn't really – I was there doing a favor the – The chairman of CBS at the time was the executor of Groucho Marx's estate, Goddard Lieberson. And he asked me to go see Teddy. Um, So I went because I had to. So anyway, Goddard called and made me go down a second time. When I went down the second time, um, I was always a huge fan of Teddy's voice. Once I realized he was the voice of Harold Melvin, I just didn't like the show he was doing it. But when I went down the second time, I sort of made up my mind that I was going to be so crazy that, um, there was no way I was going to have to get into this. Because in those days, urban music was a tough game. It was dangerous. It was very different than the rock and roll world. So um, I get down there, and um, he lived in an apartment house. in front of the apartment house is a white Rolls Royce. It says Teddy on the license plate. And, you know, I was a young kid. I wasn't, like, I wasn't rocking at this point. I was still, you know, checking the bills at the restaurants. How much... How much was a soup? Uh, um, <laughs> and I go up and I, it's a penthouse apartment. I ring the doorbell and this gorgeous girl comes out in the negligee. Just gorgeous, like drop date gorgeous. And I was always very taken with gorgeous women. It was sort of one of my things. So it's, so, oh, wow. And then I go in and Teddy walks in the room and he, he, his, um, he's the sexiest, um, most handsome, I can't even describe when he walks in a room, he owns the room and it's like pure sex. Um, and here, you know, I'm like this, you know, not even successful yet kid who's, you know, um, one of 25 other managers. So anyway, he, he, he said, thanks for coming down. And I said, listen, man, there are not a lot of things I really know in life. But one of the things I do know is that you have no qualifications to determine which one of us is lying to you because you have met the best liars in the business and I'm probably one of them. So the criteria of you making a judgment that this guy's going to do a better job for you, or this guy's going to do a better job, it means nothing because you're not qualified to make that decision. I said, but here's what the other thing I know I can get higher than you. I got more beautiful women than you. I can drink more than you. And when you collapse at the end of like nights of partying, I will be there to take the cash out of your pocket. So when you wake up, you still got it. And he just looked at me like I was completely insane. I thought he just <laughs> throw me out. And say <laughs> and he said, you know, you're right. Let's get together. And uh, three weeks later, I got the Atlantic apartment. Atlantic Records had an apartment at the Warwick Hotel. And we got a two-bedroom suite. And three days later, <laughs> I was managing Teddy. And I managed him for his whole life after that. And he actually tells a story in his bio.
3: What is the story in the book of you running through the streets with the suitcase full of money? That was, that was related to Teddy. Yeah. <laughs> he,
0: he, we were doing two shows at the Apollo. And um, after the first show, and they were sold out shows way in advance, so there was no cash in the box office. And um, after the first show, he wouldn't. He, the road manager came to me and said, he won't go on. He's left the building. I said, he's what? He's left the building. It's a sold out audience. And he said he's left the building and um, he wouldn't wouldn't get on the phone with me, wouldn't talk to me. And, I, you know, I had this is Harlem. This is not funny. You know, this is a sold out crowd. You don't get up there and say, Teddy, can't come on. Come back tomorrow for your money. Um, I, I no, I didn't want that on my shoulders. So I called him. I had a business manager who just passed away, Bert Fidel, and he had a restaurant client in the village who um, in the restaurant business, you tend to keep cash. So he had sixty thousand in cash, which was what I needed. So I took a limousine down to the hotel, <laughs> picked up the cash. and The limousine broke down about fifteen blocks from the theater. So here I'm walking, <laughs> this white Jewish kid, walking too hard of it, like you know, ten thirty at night with six of the, so. I was so scared, but we got it and paid everybody <laughs> off. wasn't Wasn't until a couple of couple of years later when Teddy told me, one night um, with some cognac, he said. Um, You know, I'm really sorry about that night at at, uh, the Apollo. And I said, what happened, man? And he said, someone flashed the gun. And unbeknownst to me, his last manager had been shot to death. So he just got really scared. Someone had pulled the gun the first show. And he just didn't want to do the second one.
2: He had a woman manager. Yeah. And then just one day, one morning, they said, oh, your manager was shot in the head.
3: Well, you go into detail in the book, Shep, about the Chitlin Circuit and the, cor- the amount of corruption at the time and how you guys were determined to break it. Very ballsy of you, I might add. Yeah, we, you know, for me, I didn't feel like I had anything to lose. Um, I wasn't
0: really married. I didn't have kids. Yeah. And just, you know, just about everything I've done has been a knee-jerk reaction, and that was really a knee-jerk reaction to, like, you know, Basically, a, can you curse on the show? Fuck them. Sure, yeah. It was basically yeah. a fuck them. It was like, you know, fuck you. Like, fuck you. Promoted and didn't pay us. And when I went to Teddy, I found out that's what happens to him every night. Uh, this had happened with black performers. There was a history of this. It, you know, it was, it was in every industry, it seems to be the same pattern. Um, that there's suppliers of content who are the artists, whether they're chefs, whether they're musical artists. Then there's power people who make huge amounts of money off them. And, and they should. No one's saying they shouldn't. But um, in the record business, how it manifested in the black world, it started in the white world too, but it broke out very fast, was an artist was told that in order to sell records, radio stations would only play their record if they went to those towns and played a club date for them or a concert date for them. So uh, Teddy would go to Cleveland He'd play for the radio station in Cleveland that was playing his records. For a promoter who worked in cahoots with the radio station, he'd basically play for free or almost nothing. The record company would make him do it, saying that's the only way you're going to get hit records. Radio station would make money, club would make money, and Teddy would go to the next place. The chefs were exactly the same way. Yeah. They were convinced that the only way they were going to get business into their places was... Was by doing these things for free, and and the demand for for R and B music was so gigantic that it didn't matter if, you weren't going to stop people from paying playing Teddy, but every act went for that, and um, it just and it became very hardcore, and and if you tried to move out of it, which a few acts did, then you started getting serious pickets at your show, um, because they were it was very tied into politics it was it was tied it was so much money right that it was tied into anything Well, you guys got death threats when you decided to break it and play and play the Roxy to take a chance the fbi protected us for a while which was really nice but Incredible. but we had you know when we did radio city musical we had pickets um because just because that radio city was a white owned facility so the black yeah. promoter in that town couldn't make money on the show so it became it was it was it was gangster on one side, political on another, culture on another. Um, also, there was a huge feeling in in the black community of loyalty to the black promoters and black record companies. And even if they were getting screwed by them, they're still loyal. You know, it's like your parents; they may be bad to you, but they're still your parents. So, and, sure, it was the devil. They wasn't
2: know. Wasn't it that they they when they would act, they'd hire someone. And at the end of the gig, just say to them, no, we're not going to pay you.
0: Yeah, or they'd give them a ring or they'd um, give them half of what they owed them. But it wasn't just that. It was, it was the lack of respect for their artistry. They'd never provide a PA that was adequate for the building. They'd never provide lighting systems that showed off the artist right. So it wasn't just that they weren't allowing them the resources for doing it. They were making them compromise their artistry. A pattern of disrespect. Just a total pattern. And that's what got me to like the fuck, you know, fuck you. Uh, It was Teddy's first date. He went on 30 minutes late because the PA system was being used at the Holiday Inn. And they were doubling up the system. And they they sold 8,000 seats in a building Alice had been to four months before and sold 6,000 seats. We got paid a lot of money. He got paid nothing.
2: And and you... Well uh, this is uh, on a lighter topic but also with Teddy. Uh you he was doing a concert with thousands of people mostly women who were in love. They were all like yeah. sexually yeah. turned on by Teddy Pinterest. And and you gave out like thousands of chocolate lollipops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Like we said, master promoter.
2: What I what I
0: always tried to do for my artists was, um, so sort of, I always tried to get ahead a little bit, and and write our own headlines. So when, when we saw it, when we came up with this idea of for women only, I saw it I sat in my jacuzzi and I said, okay, now I'm in the hall. Now he's singing. Close the door. What do I want those women doing?
3: Oh man, like licking
0: a chocolate lollipop.
3: <laughs> Shepard. Shep. This is not a visual medium, so we'll tell our listeners that Shep is licking the chocolate lollipop demonst- demonstrating what his his vision was.
2: He's sticking his tongue out and then putting his fist to his face. and so so it, it was like symbolically, thousands of women. Sucking his exactly, yeah. there.
0: What
3: could be greater? Not subtle.
2: What could be greater? What a great fantasy. Yeah, I yep. want to try that at one of my shows. You should. Yeah. A little halva. <laughs>
3: <laughs> ah, 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 ah. I like it. You know, on a, on a more on a more serious note, Shep, I just, since we're on the subject of Teddy, and I want to plug the documentary, which Dara called me. We, we're all watching it. I had seen it before, but I showed my wife. And Dara, Dara was texting me furiously, I love this man. He's my new hero. And I've seen it a
0: few times. I cry every time I see it. Oh,
3: it's beautiful for so many reasons. And Mike did a wonderful job. But one of the most touching things, one of the most touching moments in it were a... Uh, uh, not a dry eye in the house is when you you basically got Teddy back on stage at Live Aid after his terrible accident. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's uh it's a moment. That was an amazing moment. That was uh, Can
2: can we go back first to the accident? I it, it was like there was a show that Teddy didn't want to go on.
0: It was a show in in uh, England. I I actually am only half right about it. I had the opportunity since the movie came out, he run into Harvey Goldsmith, who was promoting that show.-huh And Teddy was actually sick, maybe not sick enough to go on. Okay, so you're amending the story. I'm sort of amending the story because I, I it always I mean, I had the conversation with him, um, but he was also sick. I thought he was just really putting it on. Um, he, he, I, I just felt like something was wrong. Um, and we had a long conversation about karma and how, you know, um, these people got babysitters. Um, they planned for this for months and months and months. This stuff comes back to haunt you. Um, and that was the last show he did.
3: You you had said some, according to the documentary, you said something to him about how karma was real. Yeah. No, I remember saying it to him. That in my
0: mind, I didn't remember him saying he was sick. And When I saw the promoter, he said he was. So I sort of feel a little bad that I was so strong with him. You know, artist-manager relationships are very unique when they work. Um, They all have a different rhythm. Um, The the symbiosis is never the same because the needs are so different for every human. And it's really a human management. There's a career management. But um, with Teddy, we used to have these things called don't be a schmuck. Conversations, (laughs) 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 and he was an artist who I could really talk to, and he could really talk to me. There were a couple of times when he called me out, but it was such a great. That that's the real joy of management, is when you can be stupid with your client, where you're not scared to say things that maybe are too far. So we, this was one of our "Don't be a schmuck" conversations, where I called him. I called him up, and you know. um, he said, "Oh shit! What did I do?" And uh, we went to our thing. But he was a, yeah, yeah.
2: He crashed into a tree. Yeah, as Rolls Royce. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And then, you know that's that's so so many things have been revealed to me in the last few years. Um. I had. I'm not one who deals with the past, so for me, as soon as this happened, I just jumped in, working the future. I never asked them what happened that night. I never asked them. There was a big controversy. The, the girl in the car was actually a guy. Um, I never asked them about that. Um, I, but I did make some assumptions and, uh, some of my assumptions were very wrong. I've now found out sort of the real story, which is, um, I always assumed that Teddy put his hand down and felt a male, you know, a penis and then went into a tree. That was always my thought because I I knew what happened up till then. He had been in a basketball game. He brought a date. I didn't realize he drove the date home till I saw the movie, but I knew Julius Irving had told me what happened that night, that this girl was at the bar. Teddy had a date. He ended up taking the girl from the bar home. The girl was actually a guy that came out in the newspapers the next day. So my assumption was that that Mm -hmm. I... I uh, was lucky enough to get invited to Oprah's for lunch one day. And we started talking about it. And she said she had a show on TV that, um, where are they now? And she went out and found the girl or guy. And it turns out that she had had a sex change operation. So she didn't have a penis. So my whole thought process was actually wrong. Um, and he, that nobody, it, but nonetheless, that's what that's what came out in the streets, and um, that was
3: uh, was a difficult moment. So, I, I, but I never went back, and and ever. Um, well, it's a beautiful moment in the doc that you know no, nobody thought he would perform again, and he was in he was in the wheelchair and at live age. Nobody in thought he would you, live.
0: Nobody thought he would. I mean, if- would
3: live, would even live. And, uh, and somehow you convinced him, you brought him to that live eight show. And, uh, tell, tell us what you said to him when he, when he said, I, I can't, I can't do it. I just heard from Valerie
0: actually Simpson first time since that day. Wow. She texted me yesterday. She saw the documentary, um, got the number from the people who made the movie. Um, it, it um, we had, we had worked really hard. I think if you, if anyone watches the documentary or see, there was a team of doctors that got him back to a place where he could sing. Um he didn't have a lot of power. Um, but we had started recording. And um then they announced they announced live aids and a good friend of mine, the same fellow from England, Harvey Goldsmith, who was a promoter for the last show, was a promoter for Live Aid. And I saw they were doing it from Philly. And we had been very careful to never take a picture of Teddy. Nothing his audience had never touched him since the accident. We no press releases, no pictures. We, I wanted that first bullet to be gigantic. I didn't want to compromise it at all, and I knew that there were women out there who, you know, every day thought about Teddy, his audience. They loved them. So when they announced Live AIDS, it just seemed so obvious to me that he had to he had to be part of this moment. And um, I called Ashford and Simpson. I called that. I think their manager. I don't think I actually ever spoke to them and said what I'd like to do, and would they do it with him? And they jumped on it immediately. And we were all gung-ho until we got to the stage. And when we got to the stage, he was really scared. I've never seen him scared before. Teddy's a pretty brave guy. And um, he asked the family, should he, you know, the the family was like huddled around him, and one of them came over to me and said, "I I don't know if he can do it, he's really scared. And I just went over to him and I said, uh, listen, Teddy, I got it. I, you should be scared. I'm scared too. Um, but this is the moment. So there's nothing you can do. I'm going to wheel you out there. You don't have to sing. You can just hum along with them, do whatever you feel like doing, but you're going out. Wow. And as um, soon as he got out there, it was he could see you in the movie when he's rolling yeah. out. You yeah. know the. Uh, it was a great moment. I remember that day. I remember that show.
3: Really special. Yeah. You know? He was a, a beautiful man. Um. What
2: a talent! What a talent! We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor.
3: That, let's take it to something a little lighter and sillier—a lot lighter. Since you, Gilbert, Gilbert was talking about the penis lollipops. This seems like <laughs> it seems like a perfect segue in, <laughs> into the. Uh, The aborted attempt to shoot Alice out of a cannon. Oh,
0: my God. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, when I talk to young people, too, I always tell them that the failures are sometimes more important than the successes. That's one of your philosophies, right? One of your
3: business philosophies.
0: And I think this was one that really uh, demonstrated how, um, how you can sort of overcome anything if you work together and have some trust and belief. And are willing to, you know, really do what it, go for it. So, um, I had learned when I did the see-through clothes that, that you have <laughs> <laughs> that you have to rehearse. Rehearsal, you have to rehearse. If I had rehearsed that, I never would have gotten in that situation. Sure. So we we I, uh, unfortunately I didn't learn all my lessons, but so we get our first. um a baseball stadium, football stadium show. Three River Stadiums, Pittsburgh. I think it's 1972 or 73. Humble Pie is opening and somebody else for us. And um, I'm trying to think of what would Alice Cooper do in a baseball, in a football stadium? What would be Alice (laughs) Cooper? I I got it. We're going to shoot him across the stadium out of a cannon. That would be so cool. And I've seen it at Ringling Brothers Bottom and Bailey Circus. It's obviously doable. I don't know if you can get how far you can project. But um, in those days, Warner Brothers Film Studios was building our props. And they had done a great job. with a. Uh, we did a. We hung them, so they built the gallows, which was great. Oh, and the
3: guillotine. And the guillotine.
0: Yeah. Everything they built yeah. for us was great. Sure. Um, so I went in. There was a guy with little half glasses on. Didn't even look up for me. I thanked him for the guillotine, told him how great it was, was working every night. And, <laughs> Thanks uh, for the guillotine. Thanks for <laughs> the guillotine. <laughs> and I said, you know, we we do it a stadium, and um, I'd like to shoot Alice out of a cannon across the stadium. And uh, didn't even look up at me, and it said, what period cannon? <laughs> 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 Which gave me so much confidence. So we ended up with a World War II cannon. And he actually, he had the blueprints. He took it out of a drawer. (laughs) There it was, to me, it's foolproof. But I still remembered you had to do break-in. You know, you got to rehearse. But I made the fatal mistake of going on radio. And in the ad, see Alice get shot across out of a cannon. So it's banging on the radio. So we get to the first break-in date in like Flint, Michigan. And, um. The gag was um, Alice gets in, goes through a crawl space. There's a dummy inside. He gets into a golf cart. The golf cart drives him around to the other side. Meantime, we do shtick on stage to give him time to get there. Mm -hmm. So the band, (laughs) the lights go out. The band all gets torches. The drummer has a snare drum. They do a slow procession up the steps to the end of the cannon. They had the torch, they light the fuse, slow burn down, explosion over the PA, smoke everywhere, spotlight, hits Alice. The only problem is the dummy came out one foot. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a person in the place who knew what we were doing or to look where Alice was. They are all looking at the dummy. It's <laughs> one foot down, so there's nothing. So they get him in the golf cart. He said, boy, that was quiet ending. And I said, yeah, could be the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I said, it came out one foot. He said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, go to sleep. I'll figure it out. And instead of keeping me up all night bitching at me, he let me go do what I do. Um, Which is a great lesson. Not that it worked, but so he comes, shows up the next night, and I say, "I got it." Um, (laughs) It's it's, uh, overnight. I got these fire. I was big on fire extinguishers. They had CO two foam ones. So we put balls on the cannon. We put (laughs) we turned turned it into a giant penis. And when he got there, I said, "You get on it. You're going to masturbate it. You got to lick it and rub it and, and this." this foam is going to go out over probably the first 40 or 50 rows of cum. It's going to be (laughs) fantastic. It's a cum cannon. It's going to be fantastic. (laughs) So he gets on the kids. the last song he gets on the cannon. He's working so hard. He's licking it. He's rubbing it. He's He's scratching the testicles. He's, and the foam drips out. It's like you know, one little drip comes out of the end of the <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody who knows what it's supposed to be. It's like, what is this guy fucking doing? So now, now we're one day away from see Alice yeah, get shot out of the cannon. There's 55,000 people waiting. Well, <laughs> so what are we gonna do? I go to sleep. I got cover it covered no problem he said well you didn't really get it covered last night I don't know but I got it I got it <laughs> so uh, the end of this the end of the story is he shows up that night and um he says so what are we going to do I said well I don't want to tell you the whole middle the end is you're probably going to spend the night in the hot local hospital here and he wanted <laughs> and I said I just had have, I had have, I have this premonition that the cannon's going to blow up while you're in it he said you got to be kidding me i said no we got a film crew here from from pittsburgh they're going to see you get in it they're going to see the cannon blow up they're going to see the ambulance rush up they're going to follow the ambulance to the hospital we're going to have one of the roadies one of the roadies in a doctor's outfit who's going to do a press conference around the corner for the hospital (laughs) saying that that you got burned but that you want the show to go on but that I'm going to make you do the show, the doctor is saying, but we're going to ha- make him do the show from a wheelchair. He can't be standing. <laughs> and it hit the news in Pittsburgh, and we did the show from a wheelchair. And
3: <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert's taking notes, yep. Yeah. Let's <laughs> <to> incorporate this. <laughs> You you need and, a little bit of this in your stage show, Gil. And,
2: <laughs> and what was, there was one thing you said, the three things you say a manager yeah, does. Yeah,
0: that was told to me by Jerry Wexler, one of the great old record managers. You want uh-huh. to be a good manager, you got to get the money, never forget to get the money, and always remember to never forget to get the money. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: Well, you know, so somebody who who knew that what you guys were going for, and you say this in the doc and also in the book, you guys were were you, it kind of hit you that it was vaudeville. Oh yeah, completely. That, that that you know the music was one thing, but you you guys were a little bit of P.T. Barnum. Oh yeah, and yeah, both we of love you.
0: That era and love doing that stuff and still do. Alice still. You go to yeah. an Alice show and it's fun. It's you know it's a it's a beginning, a middle,
3: and uh, an end, and it's fun. Uh, I saw one of those guillotine shows as a kid. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah,
2: yeah. And and you also had a thing of you would warn people you signed on. Like you said something like, I'll have you work really hard and then you'll be in rehab. Something well, no, like that. What I would that. say to
0: him is um, if I do my job perfectly, I will probably kill you. <laughs> um, luckily for you, I'm not perfect. But I'm really good, so you will get maimed. And you got to be willing to take it. Because nobody escapes it, and I don't know anybody who, who really has.
3: Um, you know, um, fame is really tough to deal with. You say there's no intrinsic value in fame. Could you could you elaborate on that? Yeah, there's no. It, it doesn't do
0: anything for you. It You know, I'm not the fame. It's the things that come off fame. You know, mm. there there's, you know, being a great chef. You know, there's an end result of great food. Being a great comedian, people laugh. Being famous, what, you know, but you get a parking spot. There's just, it's, there's no intrinsic value to it. It's not, it's a manufactured, artificial, um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for bad reason, but it, but it has no, there's, it's, it's vapor. And it's a dangerous vapor. Um, Cause you know, I, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't say why, but I, I am a sociologist by sort of you know college, and all you have to do is look at everyone. Look at everyone who's famous, and luckily, the majority recover. But I don't know anybody who hasn't had a, a big fall.
3: Um, well, it's sort of a specter in the in the dock, uh, and uh, you know that. For all the good times that you're having and all the adventures that you're having, Janice died at 27. Yes, Jimmy you know, that's died. what I mean. It's Jim, Jim yeah. Morrison died. You know, Teddy had the terrible accident. You're, you're kind of, you're stalked by it a little yeah. bit, if I may say. And I, Alice I rehab.
0: I mean, every friend that Alice I have. In
3: rehab. Is yeah. either dead
0: or rehab. Every famous friend, which doesn't exist for my friends from college or from high school. You go through them and not everyone, you know, it's a very different journey. Not that it's an easy journey. Of course. But there's something. Uh, and I. I don't know if it's the personality that, you, that drives to become famous that is the problem or the fame itself that is the problem. I, I don't know which, which came first, the chicken or the egg, but you have to be a fool to take
3: fame lightly when you see what it does to people. And you've been around the most famous people yeah, in the universe. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and fame also is addictive.
0: Oh, so it be, it, it's all the bad stuff. It's, that's what I mean. There's no intrinsic value to it. it. It feeds on itself. It's completely addictive. It finds you doing things that you would never think in a million years to do to try and get more fame or to keep the fame. Um, it's, it's, and, and it usually ends up in this yin and yang where you will do anything. You, you pay $15,000 a month to get famous. And if someone says hello to you in a restaurant, you freak out. So you're yeah. fighting to become the person that you don't want to be. It's it's such a, it's the circle is that's so bizarre. Fascinating. I always said to my artists when they would get angry, when someone came over for an autograph, I said, no, no, no. The time to get angry is when they don't come over for the autograph. Yeah. That's, that's when that's you great. get angry. Um, that's great. Yeah.
2: And and if we could go to another topic one I, I was fascinated by uh, you also, Handled of all these rock and soul performances. I know
3: where you're going. Groucho Marx. <laughs> oh, the greatest. Yeah, how did Groucho come into your orbit? And Alice. So Groucho came into my orbit. Alice
0: called me up one day and he said, You won't believe where I was last night. And I said, Where is it? I was watching TV with Groucho Marx in his bed. And I said, You, ah. you got to be kidding me because Alice likes to tell stories. So I said, You got to take me. So maybe a week later, he called me up. He said, Groucho said you could come over. So I go up and they're both in bed in Groucho and Mark. <laughs> they're wearing gray Mickey Mouse ears,
3: both of them. It's <laughs>
0: the so Groucho bizarre. On it. And it was like wild. So I said I was so intimidated. I don't even know if I could talk. Well, you were
3: a kid. We should point out too that your oh, dad yeah. used to watch Marx Brothers movies oh with my your God. Dad,
0: that, my dad. That was so. Uh, we used to. My father would, would cry. He was laughing so hard. Um, so it was a very important part of my life. Of course. Um, um, and I re- literally, the whole time I imagined it was very tough for me to ever speak. Um, it was really, really difficult. I was in awe every second I was around them. I had a person go. So anyway, so I go up that night and I get to meet him. And the next day, Alice tells me that um, he couldn't afford his three shifts and nurses. And that's why he was going up there every night to be in the, the late shift and he would sleep with him and get him water. I said, You're kidding me? It's Gratchwell Marks. And he, he had a business manager who was, before they knew what Alzheimer's was, had Alzheimer's. And they literally didn't, they didn't have money. I mean, they had money to eat, but they didn't have money. So um, there was a woman in his life who was his secretary slash manager slash Oh, lover. yeah. She's come up on this show before. Yeah. Um, many,
2: many times. I, yes.
3: I,
0: I um, have nothing bad to say about her. I know a lot of people do. Um, but I, I, I came in after she was there. She's the one who hired me. Erin Fleming. Erin Fleming. Thank you. And it was amazing because Groucho would be slumped over. No expression on his face. inanimate, And she would walk in the room and he would get eight inches taller, a huge smile, start telling jokes. She'd leave the room. He'd go right back down. It was like a marionette. So she made him happy. And that's all I really cared about. And I I never, I, I, I believe the stories that maybe she gave him sedatives when she wanted to go out. But that was at that period when they couldn't afford the the shifts of nurses. Um, So anyway, I, I came in, she hired me. I put a guy named Bill Owens who set up an office in their house. And the main thing we did was get the TV show back on the air who were 95% of the contestants were SAG actors. No, you bet your life. Yeah. <laughs> so we yeah, having- I, I never knew that. I found that out in your book. <gasps> so we had to go back and renegotiate with the estates to get a rate that would afford it to be syndicated. Um, and then I did a birthday party for him. It was Albert Brooks, I think, last time he did stand up. Wow. Um, he performed for Groucho at somewhere. I forgot where we went. But there was a group up at Groucho's house Bud Court, Marvin Hamlish, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. And they were the house band. And when you ate dinner at Groucho's house, you had to perform after dinner something you didn't normally do. So Alice would read a book and have an you know, arpeggio. Marvin would give him this big arpeggio or, or a dance. I, I would read contracts to music. Where to Ford, Groucho would always throw me out of the room, like, get out of here. <laughs> but he would, every time I'd be with him, every single time, have an opportunity to come up where he would say, This guy's Shep, my manager? And someone would say to him, Yeah, that's Shep. He say, Funny, you don't look
3: like a crook. <laughs> <laughs> every time would he <laughs> would he tell time. tales about the actors and the people he used to oh, work with when he was God, in bed with stories. Alice stories,
0: oh my God. He'd entertain
3: them. He had a story
0: about everybody, you know, but usually it was about who was fucking who. This one, <laughs> He was fucking well, we the sister or, the this, or He was fucking uh, the daughter or the dad. No, he was hysterical. We'd go out to eat. It's been 10 minutes. You haven't sued anybody.
2: <laughs> and here's a case of one of the biggest legends of showbiz who can't pay for a nurse to take care of him.
3: Well, he didn't handle his money terribly no. well, did he? No. He, he, I, my sense
0: was the business manager couldn't even find where it was if there was money. He was wow. it was before we knew what Alzheimer's was. And he was definitely an Alzheimer's guy. But we got wow. him back to life. Jerry Moss came up to the line very heavily at AM, gave him a lot of money for that album, much more than the album was worth. Right.
3: Your friend Ron Delsner was here. Oh,
0: was us, he? By the way. Who oh, produced I loved that. That, love that. You had that Dick lo- Donner,
3: who's Yeah, Richard Donner was here too. Yeah. Yes. A lot of a lot of people yeah. from the Shep Gordon Inner Circle. And Alan Zweibell. I went to college with. It's why Bell was oh, here too? that wow. yeah. whoopee and and lots of your no, friends. No, no, I saw and, a lot
0: of them on the show. That I, I love the Dick Donahue show. I could think I don't think he's ever done another one.
3: An inter, a podcast, you yeah, mean? Yeah, I don't think he he doesn't. He, after Gilbert brought up the, uh, the 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 sexual affair between Brando and Richard Pryor, he may never do another one.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think we were his virgin podcast and his swan song.
2: <laughs> And you were talking about your father and you said, you know, growing up, you didn't know his your father. You didn't know anything about him and you weren't concerned with anything. And then you said that you found out he gave up his entire life.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. He, um, I, um, you know, you only know what you know. Sure. And, um, childhood is a strange thing. I, and I had a, I had a very bizarre childhood my mother was a very strong personality Uh, she really ruled the house not uncommon in jewish families at that time um my dad just sort of went to work and was quiet and gave me a lot of love and my brother had a dog that used to bite me so i very rarely interacted (laughs) with the family i i I mean really rarely interacted i barely know my brother um and um we probably haven't had dinner 20 times i'm 73. So that that's and we grew up in the same house. Wow. So uh, my my image of my father always was of the the human I loved the most on the planet who loved me so much and I used to feel sorry for him. Um he never had friends. Um he didn't do anything. He didn't drive. Um he never did anything for himself and I thought of him as I loved him so much. And I thought of him as this very weak man, you know, domineered by my mother, no real life. Um, And when I was writing the book, it sort of, there was a moment in writing the book where it sort of hit me. Uh, In doing the research, I started to see, um, I got out a box of stuff because Mike wanted me to look. And I saw that he was a handball champion. Then I found these cards that he had that available for stag parties, Ben Gordon, um, and I saw pictures of a, of a, he worked at a brewery, which I didn't know. What, what was he doing at stag parties? Like stand up? No, he was, a, no, it was, um, you know, it was a card that he would give out, I guess, to women.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: I have the card, wow. it's, it's in my I'm bedroom. liking this guy more and more. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> and, and I found that he had a life. Wow. um, And, it, and realized that he sort of gave up his life to raise me. And that was his full-time thing. He was with me always and was, had given, I mean, I, I never, he had one friend who I knew not. Um, so I thought he never had any friends. When I opened up the book, there's always 20 guys and they're handball champions and that he, you know, so it really, it um, it explained to me a lot of the choices I've made in life, um, which I never understood why I made them. And they always say, you know, genetics are, because I tend to make those kind of choices myself, but yeah. I never run this. I I do basically everything knee jerk, so
3: you know I make choices without thinking about it. Well, you also put people first, which is one of the one of the philosophies of your of in in the book and of your business yeah. style, your approach to business and to life. And it sounds like your dad did. Yeah, yeah, he was
0: completely of service, which I never realized. I thought he was living a life out of weakness, and he was really living it out of strength. I mean, to to, to give to some, to to your family the way he gave, and give up everything that he enjoyed in life. That's service, you know. That's yeah, amazing service. Absolutely, uh, that's living a life of service.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this.
3: Chef, so many stories on these cards. Where you? Where do you want to go, Gil? Oh, uh, <laughs> well. <laughs> You <laughs> Oh, that's a loaded question. Where do you There's want
2: so to go? There's so much. You're like yeah. a six hour interview. You you got a phone call that I guess a lot of men would envy. Uh Raquel Welch called you yeah. a few years
0: ago. <laughs> she called me, it was about four days before the Academy Awards. And um she said, Are you the guy that made that freak Alice Cooper famous? <laughs> <laughs> and i said well maybe sort of kind then she said uh, you you taking me to the academy awards i'll pick you up at eight o'clock or six o'clock whatever the time was and she was wearing this little chiffon pink dress which as in those days you would pull up to a red carpet and johnny oh uh the, the mayor of hollywood yeah, johnny grant johnny grant would come into the car
3: yeah yeah, he's gone now. Yeah,
0: but he'd come into the car with the microphone, you know, and sure. hi, it's Raquel's here. It's a whole different thing than the way they do it now. There was one guy in those was days. was one guy. So as yeah. he leans in, Raquel says to me, my dress just broke. You had to hold the back. So now, again, I'm a young kid. I'm with Raquel Welsh. I'm, you know, I'm holding the back of her dress. I'm trying not to get a hard on. <laughs> 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 probably didn't do too well at that
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway uh, i uh i ended she, basically what she said to me was that she realized that um she was getting older that she was a, a movie sex star and that was a real problem and that she had two kids who she needed to support she was a single mother supporting two children and um, wondered if I could um, do sort of an Anne margaret thing for a, a music dance show um, at Vegas, that kind of, you know, and, and yeah. find a career for her where her brand of a sexual star would have some, some value, um, and that's what we did. So we put together a, a song and dance thing, and I remember the first show was, um, the, the first two shows <laughs> were uh, at the Concord, where they had the, the wooden mallets. I'm sure you've been there. Where they bang on the table. Oh, well, they don't applaud. <laughs> they do. Them. Hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Which completely freaked her out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the, the second show was at, uh, up in Reno at the hotel that had elephants as the opening act for everybody. Sam Arceagas or something. Arceagas Hotel. And they had these elephants t- <laughs> with the opening act. I forgot they were the opening act. And if standing with raquel it's the second show of her career. And the elephant shit on the stage
3: during the act, right? <laughs> ready to go off? <laughs> oh my god! It
0: wasn't like it wasn't exactly the glamorous thing she was thinking of, I think when she called me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guess you guys can laugh about it now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You gave me we another segue, <laughs>
3: Sh- Sh- Shep. You gave me another segue talking about the elephant. Tell the camel story from oh. the book with Wolfman Jack. I was just, oh. I just told, was telling somebody that yesterday. We we uh,
0: <laughs> we booked the uh, the Hollywood Bowl. We had Wolfman Jack, who was a great DJ. He he was out of Tijuana. He did a show, and he went right across the country. And he was a great personality. He was a cartoon kind of character. So we had him introduce the show and it was the Hollywood Bowl for this at this point in his career was a big moment. Um he was sort of the big he had just had the biggest tour in the world. He was on top of the world. This was going to be our big statement. We we hired a helicopter pilot who was willing to go to jail? We put a lot of people in jail.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: he dropped 18,000 pair of paper panties on the crowd, which cost a bunch. He
3: dropped of- paper panties on the crowd 18, from a helicopter. 18,000 paper
0: panties. <laughs> I just to repeat a, that. It was a great story. Elton John tells the story of being in the front row that night and he, spent the, he came out with about 14 pairs of underwear. That I could have <laughs> it, it draped all over. Anyway, <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and the Hollywood Bowl is um, the most expensive union hall on the West Coast. Um, it's it's everything you do is very heavily unionized. It's very expensive. Um, you don't make a lot of money when you play the bowl. So we were now paying for the helicopter. I got El- I got Wolfman and I got him uh, to to come out. To introduce the opening act, he came out on, carried by 14 women, all dressed as Arabian, um, <laughs> you know, belly dancers, and they carried him out in a moat. And then the second time he came out, he came out on a little motorcycle with um, 40, who are those, like the Rotary Club guys in the hats? Oh, the, the
3: Shriners. Yeah, the Shriners, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the Fez. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I kept thinking of Jackie Gleason like Jonas. a circus
0: <laughs> and then the third time he came out was with a camel came out on a camel again with the girls and that thing so when we're doing the rehearsal and the camel comes out the the, the, the pit crew comes over to me the, the union head and he said Mr. Gore we got a problem and I said what's the problem he said you didn't tell me you were going to have uh, animals and I said yeah but uh, you know it's one animal it'll come and go he said well Here's our problem. Um, if the camel takes a dump, that's okay, because we have prop guys. But if the, if the camel takes a dump and the dump steams, that's working props, we have to have two people. <laughs> <laughs> right, you gotta be kidding me. Two more people, and I couldn't. So I went to Joe Gannon, this day, <laughs> so
3: insanity. who was
0: producing it with me. I went over to Joe, and I said, you're standing at the side of the stage with a fucking <laughs> towel. If that cow starts shitting, you run out there and cover it in a towel. That's what happened.
1: Before it steams. Those <laughs> are some steam, stringent union really rules. <laughs>
0: I didn't if it want to steams, ask him, like, it's two guys, I, right? I didn't want to ask him how much steam.
3: <laughs> is your line, like a steam line? That is so good. We got to ask. It's in the intro, Shep. We got to ask about the School's Out album. Yep. And specifically, which is, uh, again, the days when they when they really put production into albums. There was a great company called Pacific Ionier.
0: Um, two guys, Tony and Ernie. And I came across them with the Cheech and Chan Big Bamboo album. I don't know if you remember that album. Sure. That. Yes. Oh, sure. But yes. that was the coolest album. So I found them and we started working with them. And um, the idea for, uh, I was always, I had, Again, I, I always went back to, I, th- I always thought my job for my artists was if I could make history rather than wait for history, mm-hmm. I could guide where I wanted to go. So I was very aware of things that got newspaper. I would always clip things out of newspapers or if I'd see something that was really ironic. So I had seen this story that um, in Baltimore, they confiscated paper panties because they weren't flammable. <laughs> and when I read it, I just thought, "This is so ironic. This is something I can use somewhere with Alice." I had no idea where. It's, I clipped it out of the paper, and when we started working on Schools Out. We were talking about what would really piss off parents. What could we package this album in that would really piss off parents? If a kid brought this home, and the parent looked at the album, they oh fuck, you know, want to drop it almost and wash their hands. And I, I said, I I read this story about paper panties in the back of my mind. I said. <laughs> Fuck! If I could get the album stopped at the border for having paper panties, this is cool. So um, I went to the company, and we 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 had a really difficult fight about the paper panties because they were expensive, and it turned out I had to um, I had to do, you know, as a manager for yourself. There are times. Let me back up. As an artist, you only have one career. As a manager, you got a plenty. So if something doesn't work as for an artist, as a manager, you can move on. If it doesn't work for the artist, they have one life. So I never felt that I could let anything fail for the artist. For me, I never gave a shit. So I when, when we, when the record company said it's too expensive, that to me was, you know, I couldn't allow that to, to happen. Cause what am I going to tell his fans? Oh, we didn't do something cool because it was too expensive. Um, So I never took no's. That was my reputation. Record companies hated me. (laughs) And I did whatever I had to do to get to a yes. And in this case, I knew that they were fucking me around. And in those days, what existed in the record companies was um, only two companies that made album covers. There was Album Graphics and Ivy Hill Lithograph. And each of those two companies had exclusive contracts with different labels. So if you're a Warner Brothers artist, Ivy Hill were the only people who could make your cover, so you couldn't bid your cover out. So I went to the guy in charge, and I said, listen, this is really important. for you got to bid this out. No. Why won't you bid it out? We don't want to do it. We don't trust the other company. They do thousands of albums. No. No. So I don't take no good. So um, I hired a detective, because at that point we had money. And I said, I need some dirt on this guy. Um, I just need something that I can walk into his office and say, uh, hello, now what do you want to do? (laughs) Um, And what it turned out was that the house he was living in was owned by the album cover company. They own the house, the deed to the house. So I went back into his office and I said, hey, I can't bid it out. And he said, no, I said, uh, how would you like this in Billboard next week? That you live in the fucking house of the people that print all the covers? And he said, "We'll match the price." <laughs> ah. So we got the
3: paper. Now that's management. Yes.
0: <laughs> so now I'm in a climate of complete hostility. They're ready to rip my throat out. They want, They want. Well, you up the stakes, right? They want this thing to fail so bad, so I can't tell them what my plan is. Because my plan was to print up 100,000 albums with the illegal panties, call customs, get them busted, but at the same time order panties from Canada for the other million and a half albums that (laughs) didn't have a flat, but I couldn't tell them because they would kill me. So I I had to change it up in midstream. What I did is I had the the panties shipped the same day as the album shipped. And I called Baltimore as a guy... Tom Zito, who was the music reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And I called him up and I said, I have a major exclusive for you. You got to print it tomorrow. You got to wait 24 hours and then print it. So all of Alice's albums shipped into the stores. Baltimore Sun, biggest panty raid in history, front page. (laughs) (laughs) 150,000 paper panties for the new Alice Cooper album have been confiscated at Customs because they're flammable. The people at Warner Brothers didn't know that I had ordered from Canada the real ones. They thought they had to take back all million and a half albums, and they were just fucking freaked, but it was all cool. So, anyway, that was. uh, And
2: and you had. I miss those days. There was one crazy story. You had a pet cat. Yeah. That yeah, it went to oh. Cary Grant. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> in the dock. It's great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it went, uh, Far out it was a cat. It was this great cat, and it got it got lost. And I put things up on trees, and um, I got a call from Cary Grant's uh, care- housekeeper who lived down the hill from me, and they said that they had found the cat and when was a good time for me to come and get it. And then they never returned my calls. For a couple of weeks, so finally, I just went down and knocked on the door. I never met him. The door opened, and there's Carrie Grant on a fur rug with my cat and two bowls of food playing on the floor. <laughs> 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 and they actually did TV. Guy did a big story about how the cat sort of brought Carrie back to life. So I just, I was going for joint custody, and I just said, "I'm give, I can't do this to Far Out." Far Out was like looking at me, going. Don't blow this for me, Shep. I got Carrie
3: Grant fucking petting me and feeding me. <laughs> Shep, I've asked this of a couple of guests before, but, you know, you, the liner notes on the back of the book, you refer to yourself as a nebbishy Jewish kid. You know, you grew up in Queens. We were talking an email about Jan's ice cream oh, parlor yeah, I love that. some of our old haunts. You grew up around here, yep. Gilbert and I remember Nathan's and Jan's, oh, yeah. which you, oh, yeah. you talk Kit, about the in kitchen your book. Sink. Remember the kitchen sink, like kitchen sink,
0: twenty eight yeah. scoops <laughs> of ice cream or something. Right.
3: You 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 say you, say you don't you, you tend to you, you tend not to look back, but you have these moments where my God, I'm this kid from Queens. I'm this Jewish kid. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't. You, you describe yourself as not having any ambition. Every day, yeah, oh, no, and, I can't and, believe it. And uh, <laughs> Betty Davis, and Cary Grant, and and John Lennon, and and uh, you know Salvador Dali, and all of these people. The Dalai
2: Lama. The yeah. Dalai uh, Lama. Yeah. You know, all it's these unreal. people
3: came into your life. Yeah. yeah, you know,
0: it's it's um there's a part of me that it's not me, so I watch it and I just can't believe it. You're removed from it. Yeah, and I pinch level. myself. It's like holy shit, how did this happen? Um, and it just keeps happening, and it's just better and better. But, yeah, no, I think for all of us, you know, I, I, th- I, and I think everybody's journey. It's just we happen to be in a journey where Hollywood is the, you know, is the uh, the the uh, the candy of today. So our journey, because it happens to be Betty Davis. But, you know, everybody's got their journey of it, it's Forrest Gump for everybody. It's just different levels. And, one way to look at and it. And
2: you're you also speak a lot about how you're aware of people's mortality. Oh yeah. No, it's,
0: that's what it is. It comes in, you know, it's, um, it's a short journey. Enjoy it. Take advantage of it. I was very lucky. I had two mentors. Um, I don't know if they know they were my mentors, but I had two people who really enjoyed life. Roger Verge, the chef and, and his holiness, the Dalai Lama, who are both of whom I was able to be around. and, see what, how service makes you happy. It's something that, you know, particularly in Hollywood and the entertainment business, it almost, you're almost ashamed to be of service. It's almost like a weakness.
3: Because it, because it rewards narcissism. Yeah.
0: So to a degree. So it's weird. You know, it took me a long time to get comfortable, um, even talking about it, um, of being of service, but it's really what, Makes me happy, you know. I I enjoy helping people.
3: And um, anybody who wants to be in show business really should should read the book and 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 watch the movie. And then they'll to, change to, their mind.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. And in one scene in the documentary, they said you had a favorite T-shirt you wore I did. that had a yeah, saying that, on that it.
0: That perked Gilbert up. Yeah. You know, I had. It's so, it's very bizarre you imagine. I just had a long conversation today about that. I am, um, maybe I'll give you too long an answer, but it, the derivation of it is I, when I was on the road, I used to get every night at the hotel, we were at a party room and it was, there were guys who worked on the crew whose job was to find girls and invite them back to the party room. Cause I wanted I didn't want the band to leave the hotel. So I felt one of my jobs is let me bring all the action to the hotel. And then I, I sort of, I know where everyone is. And every night would be the, the guys telling these women who we knew they were never going to see again and who they didn't even know the names of how much they'd love them. Oh, I love <laughs> you. I love you. Come to my room and give me a blow job. Oh, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and I and
3: I just like <laughs> Gilbert's life on the road. Yes, yeah.
0: and, and I thought it was so horrible. You know what? A, it just seemed so unfair to the girl, to the guy, to everybody, because it wasn't about I love you. It was about give me some head. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I never was willing to play that game. So I got hornier and hornier on the road. And then at one point, I said, you know, let me just be honest. Really, they all want to get backstage because they want to go to sleep with the lead singer. I just want to get some head. <laughs> I got, I, I, have backstage passes. Let me tell the band what I'm doing. And so I went to Alice in the band. And I said, listen, you know, I'm the manager. It's not easy for me to get head. I'm going to do this T-shirt and give out some backstage passes. They said, great. So that's what I did. I would walk around with this thing, and if someone would come over to me and say, I want a backstage pass. Pretty obvious. I have to tell you, I love you. It was a transaction. Um, to me, a transaction was an honest and open thing. It's open and honest. Yeah, to me it was. So anyway, that that when Mike made the movie, that came back to life. And when I I, I did a lot of um, personal appearances with the movie and with the book, and um, invariably, even at the most like um, summit it seas, you know, the most liberal of places you could get to. There are always a bunch of women waiting in the lobby with smiles on their faces going, Oh, can I get a backstage pass in, in good form, you know, or yeah, uh, you know, can I have your baby or everything taken in sort of the way it was meant. And then the night that Trump got elected, I was doing a talk at summit at sea, uh, which I had done the year before. And, um, after it came, I went outside and women were screaming at me, "You're a horrible human. You mistreat women. You should be ashamed of yourself." It completely turned into a Me Too kind of a thing overnight. So no. I have I burned every I burned the shirts and
2: thrown out the coffee cups. <laughs> and, and I I don't know if we mentioned the shirt said, "No head, no backstage pass." Yeah,
0: which was. <laughs> Which was a true, which was exactly what it was. <laughs> well, that's truth in advertising.
3: <laughs> There's pictures from, from, uh, from screenings when the doc came out of everybody wearing them. Yeah, yeah. There's oh, you boys. and Mike.
0: And people, would show, and people would show up with it and people would send me stuff. And it was like this really funny thing. And then it turned on a dime. So I don't, you know, uh, not being one who wants to offend people uh, if I don't need to. I just sort of took it out of the repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> Which my girlfriend is happy about, by the way <laughs> Your girlfriend's happy about
3: Shep, before we run out of here uh, There's a, a gentleman who who does some work for us, works with us, Mike McPadden Who's our, uh, our Facebook, does all our Facebook And he's a big Alice fan He reminds me that he has Alice's eyes tattooed on his hands Oh my god So we had to ask one question f- for Mike And I'm going to ask you this one He says... Did Alice have any ideas in the 70s that Shep had to put a stop to? And which ones worried him? And if you don't no. like that one, I have another. No, no. Not that I can think of. Okay. I mean, we had a uh, lot
0: of things that failed. Like, we, we would always try and figure out new ways to kill him. So at one point, we decided a <laughs> meat hook. We were, we were rehearsing it to Fillmore, and we decided we'd put him on a meat hook like in like in Rocky. And let yeah. everybody beat him up on the meat <laughs> hook. And it was just horrible. <laughs>
3: Didn't work well, at he's all. he's a fan of all that stuff. I mean, I've seen interviews with the two of you together. And, and he's a fan of horror movies, specifically bad horror movies. Bad horror movies. He's in a handful himself. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. He loves bad yeah. horror. That's how he prepares for his show every night. That's yeah. what he does. You watch yeah, yeah. bad kung fu movies.
3: Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> What is, the, uh, what is the story, too? I found this fascinating. The famous scene from Almost Famous, the plane scene. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the You, you real, said this was taken. Cameron yeah. Crowe took this the from. Real,
0: the real scene was um, Cameron Crowe was maybe 17, 18. He was a, report, a hotshot reporter. And Rolling Stone. Yeah, for Rolling Stone, yeah. Yeah. Before Rolling Stone, it was an Orange County newspaper. That's where I met Oh, him. right. That's right. right. Um, when he was very young. I probably met him at 14 or 15. Um and um, he, came, he got an assignment, and Candy Bergen was the photographer. So he was the writer. Candy was the photographer. And we had this really funky airplane. Um, the only – in those days, there was no cable. There was nothing. There wasn't a lot of stuff. And um, to get a last-minute sale, you wanted the 6 o'clock news. That was the only way you could really talk to the public. And especially with what we were doing, we wanted to – you know, we knew we had parents at the 6 o'clock news who would say to their kids, you better not go tonight. And that would spawn last-minute sales. So we wanted something we could do that we'd get the 6 o'clock news. And Alice doesn't do rehearsals. And that's where you normally did it. So we hired this plane, this really funky, horrible, two-prop plane with a <laughs> pilot who was, I think, drunk all the time. Um, <laughs> And and had uh, we should have never been in the airplane, but it gave us. We would come into the city. We'd get a high school marching band to meet the plane, put a red carpet out, had big snake on it and stuff, and and they would all get off with bottles of whiskey in their hands, drunk, and fall on the floor and get the the six o'clock news to see them being drunk, even though they weren't. Um, So the plane paid. The plane was an important part of our promotion, but we couldn't afford a good plane. So anyway. We're on the plane and um, playing poker, which is what everyone did. And one of the engines caught on fire. And it was like, oh, shit. And the first thing they did was double the stakes of the poker game. But the engine is now, I mean, it's flaming. And we had a, this is early, this is really early on. So this was, there weren't even crews at those days for rock and roll. There weren't anything like a carpenter crew. So, we used builders from Fire Island who couldn't be there in the winter. This was a winter tour. So, we had Space Latanzia, Hot Ralphie Cofuco, Fat Frankie Scindillero, this Italian building crew. <laughs> who were just, I love you know, same, complete fuck ups. These were like great guys. But so, um, our accountant was named Jay Benson, but he wore big glasses. And his nickname on the tour was Elton Jew. So he, <laughs> he, he he had just had a baby. The baby was maybe three months old. Elton Jew. So now the now the the, the 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 engine's on fire. We don't really know if if we're going that or not, but we had had a similar incident like a week before where they couldn't get the wheels down and the pilot had to put oil he was pouring oil in the cockpit into this thing. <laughs> So anyway, so Space Space (laughs) Latonia stands up in the back, and he says, "I don't know if we're going down or not going down, but in case we are, Elton, I got a confession to make. It's my baby," (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't true, (laughs) not true at all. And with that, the plane lands, (laughs) and that's the scene, (laughs) the camera except his was gay.
3: Uh, <laughs> he, bo- he borrowed it and put it in the yeah, movie yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great <laughs> yeah. and, and Fantastic
2: You also had a story One time you were at home And you were having trouble with your computer Oh he was
3: No he was in Fiji yeah, That's you when you were on your honeymoon <laughs> Fiji
2: and you were having some trouble <laughs> yeah. With your computer yeah. I called the desk And uh,
0: I said is there anybody who could fix a computer And they had apologized to me It it was the island owned by Fiji water. They have this beautiful resort on it, but it's only got maybe 10 or 12 buildings on the resort. And it's usually one person at a time. And I had helped them with um, marketing Fiji water in the beginning, when they first came on the market, I was working with the chefs and I had helped. So they offered me the resort for my honeymoon. And when I got there, they apologized that there was another couple, but that I would never see him and, so, anyway, when I called the front desk. They said, Oh, yeah, we'll send someone knock on the door. And it's um, <laughs> Steve Jobs from Apple. <laughs> 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 he came in and fixed the computer. And, and talk about um, like building a company. He gave me his card. I, I, I have his, if we had video, I would show it to you because I carry it all the time. And it's a very simple, just Apple S. Jobs phone number email and i've had that uh, laminated and when i have trouble with my computer i go into an apple store and every employee takes photographs with the card his his i mean i wish i ran a company the way he did the the admiration of his employees wow. for this guy is just unbelievable so anyway it's gotten me a few new computers and <laughs> <laughs>
3: Jeff, we hate we hate to wrap this up. There's so there is so much. There's so many other stories in the book, and people. Will, will you come and play with us another time? Absolutely. Just let me know when. We can ask about. I mean, you you even knew Peter Sellers for God's sake. Oh yeah, and Albert Finney who just passed. And Albert this. Finney who we just lost, and, and... good friend. No, the yeah.
0: way the, the game, the way Mike and I became really friendly buyers was um, when he started coming to my house. He would every night he'd have names written on his hand. And he'd go, okay, uh, Peter Sellers, and I had a story for everybody, so I'd give him. Then he'd go to the next one. I in all there were a couple of times I didn't have stories, and I just lied and made up stories. <laughs> but uh, that was what really bonded us together. And he said, "You got to keep." Um, so I've been lucky, the Peter Sellers, and oh my. Did gosh. you meet
3: Chaplin too? Do I have that right?
0: Yeah, I sure did. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A great little, a great little Chaplin thing is. Um, Michael Jackson, his entire show, he took from Charlie Chaplin. The hat, the bowler, the walk, the cane. Think about Michael Jackson on stage. Think about the moonwalk. That's fascinating. Think about the gloves. Think It's all Charlie. And he openly would talk about it. Not to the public, but I introduced him to Una, the wife after Charlie died. And um, he would openly talk about it. But think about that. Go
3: watch a Charlie Chaplin and watch Michael, and it's the same thing. Jeez. It is fascinating. There's so many people on this list, you know, in in the interest of time, we well, we have to get out of here. But we'll we'll ask you next time if you'll come and play with us again. We didn't get to talk about the Hollywood vampires. Yep. And then that great Anne Murray story, what you did for Anne <laughs> Murray.
0: <Marie.
3: laughs> well, let's do I it. I want to ask you about the Thallus the Thallus story. Well, we'll a- give Alan Zweibel was to look-
0: there, and Alan Zweibel was around during Zweibel, Zweibel, Swibels.
3: We'll have you. We'll have give our fans something to look forward to, and we'll tell that one next time. But but got to plug the book. Yes, I mean, and the movie is great, and it's and it's in addition and, you to know, you, you book, having uh, a million book, rock and roll stories. The book was
0: published by Anthony Bourdain.
3: Published by the late, your friend, the late yeah, Anthony Bourdain. because
2: you—that's another thing we don't have time to talk about. But you created. That whole that whole idea of s- superstar chefs. Yep. We'll
3: I was do it hungry. next time. <laughs> I was <Amazing>. very
2: hungry. <laughs>
3: <What>? <laughs> like, uh, there's, there's also his famous dinner parties. Oh, there's, it's insane. A mil- is, is Shep, it's been quite a journey. You say everybody has one, but yours has been. And also what I love is that your, your journey happened to, to, to pass through the most decadent period of rock yeah, and roll. I got really lucky. So, I got you really lucky. The, the f- period of excess so that you saw and experienced everything.
2: Okay, the book is "They Call Me Supermanch: My Amazing Adventures in Rock and Roll, Hollywood, and Hort Cuisine." Hort cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> Shep Gordon, and and we recommend it.
3: And the and the movie which Mike Myers made, which which is a whole other show that we could do and talk about. Um, uh, well, I enjoyed being with you guys. Fun, and,
2: and you know something? It's like, as someone like me who's met a, a million. Agents and managers over the years. Sorry, you're the only one that people has anything nice to say. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, I second I pay that. everyone. I pay everyone.
0: They're on retainer. <laughs>
3: I'll tell you, Shep. I watched the movie and I turned to my wife and I said, "If I'd ever had a Shep Gordon in my life, <laughs> things would have been different a lot faster." So, what, a, what, a, what a blessing to Alice and all your, your artists.
2: So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast with my sidekick, sidekick. my co-host. Sidekick? My boy wonder, <laughs> Frank Santobadre. I'm wearing
3: tights. Under yes. This. <laughs> yeah, you can't see. It. I'm wearing see-through tights.
2: And, and we've been talking to the Ex-Jewish pusher who became <laughs> well, legend- X. <laughs> <laughs> who became a legendary manager and producer, Shep Gordon.
0: Aloha. Thank you, man. It was so great. Shep, Aloha. Yeah, aloha. We'll Come visit again, me in okay? Hawaii for the next show. Oh, oh God, you really love that. Yeah.
2: Invite. Thanks, pal. I'm tired out. Yeah, I'm tired. I got tired <laughs> on the intro.
0: It's like, shit, did I do all that? Holy fuck. Oh, <laughs> Thanks,
1: guys. <laughs> wake up, all the teachers. Time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. Cause they're the ones who's coming up, and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, to jump the very best they can. No better If we're just Let it be na, 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 na. The world won't get No better We gotta change it now. Just you and me Wake up all the doctors Make the old people well They're the ones Who suffer and who catch All the hell don't have so very long before that judgment day. So, won't you make them happy before they pass away? Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out. They do it every time The world won't get no better If we just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it now, just you and me Change it, yeah, change again, just you and me. Change again, change Can't yet. do it alone. Can't do it alone. Need some help, y'all, y'all. Yeah. Can't do it alone. Can't do it alone. Yeah, yeah. Wake up, everybody. Wake up, everybody. Need a little help, y'all. Yes, we do. Need a little help, said need, need some help, yeah. Uh-uh. Change the world, what it used to be. Uh-uh. They do, do it alone. Need some help, that yeah. this help, yeah. have to say. Hey! Hello uh, everybody, uh, we need each other, wake up, everybody, well, you see, we need, wake up, everybody, we Come need, on, wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. Come on back, more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. Wake up, all your teachers, start to teach a new way. They're the ones that suffer, and every day. Teach the children, teach the babies, teach the babies, teach the children, teach the children, teach the babies, teach the children, teach the babies. They're the one who's coming out. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre. With audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn.